Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth. Episode 6, The Two Heralds. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the early reign of William the Conqueror. From his childhood as a pawn of ambitious family members, to his surprising rise as a power in his own right. We left him in the early 1060s having gained complete mastery over Normandy, and looking for opportunities across the English Channel. The situation was uniquely promising. King Edward the Confessor, now in his early 60s and in poor health, had no children of his own, and wasn't expected to last much longer. Even better for William, the old king clearly had Norman sympathies, and had surrounded himself wherever he could with Norman advisors, appointing Frenchmen to at least three bishoprics and an earldom. Though twenty years older than the duke, Edward was William's first cousin, and had spent a long exile in Normandy establishing close ties with the ducal family. The two men were probably reasonably close, and Edward may have even held out the suggestion that William should be his heir. The Duke of Normandy, however, was not the only claimant to the English throne in 1066, and to set the stage for that fateful year, we have to take a closer look at the political situation in England. Real power in the kingdom had been held for a long time not by the king, but by the family of a remarkable figure named Godwin. His origins are unknown, he seems to have deliberately kept them vague, and he first appeared during the crisis that occurred when Edward the Confessor's father, Ethelred the Unready, was expelled from England. The Viking king Canute invaded, and in the ensuing struggle Godwin chose to back the wrong side. This should have spelled the end of his career, but the wily Englishman won over Canute by arguing that his stubborn opposition really proved his loyalty. The prominent men of England had sworn an oath to be faithful to their king, and yet most of them had deserted to Canute. Could he really trust that they wouldn't abandon him the moment the going got tough? I, Godwin argued, stick by the oaths I give. Impressed either by the reasoning or the man, Canute made Godwin the Earl of Wessex and kept him as an advisor, even taking him on trips back to Denmark. When Canute died in 1035, Godwin, now one of the most powerful men of the kingdom, remained in place, advising both of Canute's disastrous sons as they reigned in succession. It was during this period that he first became involved with Edward the Confessor. Edward and his brother Alfred were living in Normandy, as they had been since their father's exile, and the fact that two possible rivals for the throne were alive and well across the channel annoyed Canute's son Harold Harefoot. A letter was dispatched inviting the exiled princes back to England, hinting that some accommodation might be made to share power. Edward seems to have run into some trouble raising a suitable escort, but Alfred immediately went to England where he was captured by some of Godwin's men. The Earl dutifully turned Alfred over to the authorities, where he was blinded so viciously that he died. Though he later protested his innocence in the affair, the murder would stain Godwin's reputation for the rest of his life. In 1035, however, it must have seemed the correct course of action to support the dominant Viking kings against naive, unseasoned exiles. But as it turned out, the Viking rule of England was short-lived. Harold Harefoot died of disease within five years of taking the throne, and his brother expired somewhat more memorably as he was rising to toast the bride and groom at a wedding feast. The English were tired of Danish rule, and Godwin, as always sensing the political mood, abruptly switched his support to the unlikely Edward still exiled in Normandy. It was a shrewd move. The new king was in his late thirties, with a weak personality that was easily dominated. There were six great earldoms in England, and Godwin had six sons that he intended to make earls. 
but even more promising was the fact that Edward was unmarried. Godwin had an available daughter, and if he couldn't gain the throne himself, he could at least co-found a dynasty. For a few years, everything went according to plan. His daughter became queen, two-thirds of the land in England fell into his family's control, and two of his sons were made powerful earls. What he hadn't counted on was the king's smoldering hatred of an overbearing counselor, especially one who had a hand in the death of a close family member. It must have been claustrophobic for Edward. Wherever he looked, there was a member of the detested Godwin family. They were hanging around his palaces, in his council rooms, even in his bed. He was too weak to rule without them, but he struck back where he could. Godwin's eldest son, Svein, the black sheep of the family, gave him the first opportunity. After kidnapping and seducing a nun, Svein further disgraced himself by luring his cousin onto a boat and murdering him. Outraged popular opinion allowed Edward to exile him, and Godwin, powerless to save his son, was diminished in prestige. Things got even worse for the Earl the next year. One of the King's Norman advisors was involved in an incident in Dover that claimed the lives of several townsmen. Since Dover was in Godwin's territory, the outraged King ordered him to punish the town. Godwin, realizing that the town was provoked, and sensing public sentiment running against the king's foreign advisers, refused and gathered his army. Tensions may have been high against the Normans at court, but the earl had badly misjudged the situation. Despite the mutual animosity, the practical English were not willing to risk civil war over the issue, and when the king showed up with an army, Godwin's forces started to melt away. Shaken by his eroding support, the earl asked the king what he needed to do to restore the peace. Edward's answer must have terrified him. Give me my brother Alfred back, he said. Godwin took the only course available to him by fleeing the country with most of his wealth, which by this time nearly rivaled that of the king. Despite this setback, the earl had a number of things working in his favor. The king had momentum on his side at the moment, but that couldn't last forever, and Godwin had powerful allies in the country working for reconciliation. Edward would often fly into a rage, but when it would pass, he would subside into meekness and had the habit of pardoning everyone. He was far too weak to hold his ground. Sooner or later, Godwin would be back. As it turned out, the exile only lasted a year. Godwin's son Harold traveled to the family estates in Ireland to raise additional support, and the two of them were greeted as heroes as they landed on the English coast. Public resentment against Norman influence at court had grown, and men flocked to Godwin's banner. Once again the two sides armed themselves, with Godwin loudly protesting his innocence. But this time momentum was against the king. His summons to gather his forces were largely ignored, and it quickly became obvious that he would have to come to terms with the earl. The king's French friends lost their nerve at the sight of his strength and fled, and Edward sullenly agreed to meet. Godwin handed over two hostages, a son and a grandson, and again swore that he was innocent of Alfred's murder, and in return the king begrudgingly announced that he was restored to full favor. The only thing that marred Godwin's triumph was the fate of the hostages. They were given to a Norman archbishop for safekeeping, but the man, seeing which way the wind was blowing, seems to have fled Normandy taking the boys with him. This was somewhat ominous because William the Conqueror immediately announced that the hostages had been given to him to support his claim to the throne, but in 1052 that seemed like a fairly remote threat. The stress of this latest campaign took its toll on Godwin, and his health began to rapidly decline. 
At the Easter court the next year, he suffered a stroke, and after a short period of incapacity, the 60-year-old Earl died. Fortunately for the family, there were still four sons of Godwin in the country, the eldest of which, Harold, easily stepped into his father's shoes. Tensions at court immediately were eased. Harold was in his early forties, tall, handsome, and most importantly, he was too young to be implicated in Alfred's murder. His main character trait seems to have been an easygoing bonhomie and an ability to put people at ease. According to a biography written in his lifetime, he could bear contradiction well and never retaliated for it, a quality rare in men of power at any age. Harold was too subtle to roughly dominate the king the way his father had. Instead, he seems to have used his considerable charisma to apologize for Edward's frequent outbursts, placating offended nobles or neighbors, and soothing the king's ruffled ego. Highly educated by 11th century standards, he owned a collection of books on falconry, a rare treasure, probably knew French, Norse, Flemish, English, and some Latin, and founded and endowed a secular college at Waltham. He traveled widely and even made a pilgrimage to Rome, passing, as one contemporary wrote, with watchful mockery through all ambushes, as was his way. As Edward aged, he turned more and more of the daily running of the government over to Harold, so he could concentrate on the great building project of his reign, Westminster Abbey. Harold's role in controlling the affairs of state was widely recognized by the population, and he was hailed as the sub-regulus, literally, under-king, or even Dea Gratia Dux, Duke by the Grace of God, an appellation usually reserved for royalty. He proved to be a careful steward, far more vigorous in foreign affairs than Edward ever was, largely because he led with a firm hand. Unlike the king, he was also an accomplished warrior, who was willing to fight when he had to. He'd cut his teeth on the formidable Welsh marches, and had even received the head of his most fearsome enemy as an offer of peace. But he always preferred to come to terms without bloodshed if possible. He managed to settle three rebellions without fighting, which says much about his diplomatic finesse. By 1057, it had become quite clear that Edward the Confessor would never have children. Either because of a personal inclination or a physical impairment, the king probably never consummated his marriage. It's been suggested that this was Edward's small attempt to defy Godwin by repudiating his daughter, but the practical result was that the search for an heir would have to begin. A surviving male relative of the royal family was found living in Hungary, and a delegation was sent to retrieve him. But he died shortly after reaching England, leaving a five-year-old son named Edgar. The boy was clearly too young to inherit the kingdom, but the crisis seemed to have been averted. Edward only had to survive long enough for Edgar to become an adult. With things in order, Harold left England for Normandy. Why exactly he did so is not clear. The Bayeux tapestry merely shows him getting onto a ship without an explanation as to what he was doing. The Normans, of course, claim that he had come to confirm William's claim to the throne, while some English apologists advance the equally improbable scenario that he was on a fishing trip and got blown off course. A more likely motivation was that Harold was trying to secure the release of his brother and nephew who were still in captivity in Rouen. Regardless of the aim, the trip was a disaster. Caught in a storm off the Norman coast, Harold's ship was forced to land in the neighboring county of Ponthieu, where he was seized by a local count and thrown into prison. William could hardly believe his luck. His main rival for the throne had fallen right into his hands. 
The duke quickly forced the Count of Ponthieu to hand over Harold, escorted him to Rouen, and feted him in style. Then he personally presented Harold with arms and invited him to join in a campaign against neighboring Brittany. Harold showed his usual flair, impressing his hosts during the maneuvers. The Bayeux Tapestry shows him hauling two Norman soldiers out of quicksand. But he can have had no illusion about the danger he was in. Despite the attention being lavished on him, he was a prisoner and everyone knew it. The moment they arrived back in Rouen, it became clear what William would demand for his release. Harold was led to the main audience chamber. There, the most precious relics in Normandy were assembled, and Harold was forced to swear that he would support William's claim to the throne, and do everything in his power to see that William became the next king of England. After the ceremony, Harold was released, and, though he had to say goodbye to his brother, they would never see each other again, he could at least console himself with the presence of his nephew, who William had allowed to go free. Nevertheless, it was probably a gloomy trip back to England. He arrived to find yet another crisis brewing. His younger brother Tostig had been appointed Earl of Northumbria, but had so mismanaged affairs that his annoyed subjects broke into his residence, stole everything that wasn't nailed down, and killed those too slow to escape, adding for good measure that if he showed his face in York again, they would do the same to him. Tostig, who was hunting with the king at the time, was taken completely by surprise. Edward, who seems to have had a close personal relationship with Tostig, was enraged and immediately called out his army, but only got a lukewarm response. This further infuriated the king, but it soon became clear that an armed response wasn't possible. Since Harold personally knew everyone involved, including the leading men of Northumbria, he was sent as an official emissary to deal with the rebels. There he was faced with a personal dilemma. The rebel leaders made it quite clear that under no circumstances would they accept Tostig back, and wouldn't lay down their arms unless he was exiled. Harold either had to support his family and plunge the kingdom into civil war, or betray his brother and send him into exile. By the time he returned to Edward's camp, Harold had come to a decision. Tostig must be sacrificed for the good of the country and go into exile. The king flew into his characteristic rage, suffering the first of the seizures that would kill him. But there was nothing he could do. Tostig, who never forgave his brother, fled to Scotland, whose king Malcolm III had recently killed his predecessor, the High King Macbeth, and tried to raise an army to invade Northumbria. The English, however, had no time to think of the disgraced Earl. Edward the Confessor was dying, and an official successor had to be chosen. The leading men of England, the Witan, met in December of 1065 and desperately looked to the king for guidance. The choice ultimately was theirs, but the king's wishes would be decisive. The trouble was that there was no obvious choice. Harold was the most popular candidate. He had carried the burden of government for the last decade and clearly had the qualities of a good king. But on the other hand, he had no royal blood. The boy Edgar had the right pedigree, but they could not in good conscience turn over the kingdom to a child in such dangerous times. William of Normandy, of course, was shouting that he had a claim, but it was fairly weak, and in any case the Normans were terrifyingly alien. The Witan wasn't about to hand over the keys to the kingdom. Edward, vacillating to the end, refused to give any direction. He suffered another seizure on Christmas Eve, and, though he rallied enough to attend the yearly celebrations, a few days later, he was too sick to attend the consecration of Westminster. He slipped into a coma, 
but revived briefly on January the 4th, long enough to speak. Taking Harold's hand, he named him his successor and begged him to look after his queen. The next day, he was dead. Harold was crowned the same day that Edward was buried, disregarding the scandalized protest of the Normans who branded him an oathbreaker. The English countered that a vow made under duress wasn't binding, though they did admit that Harold tended to give oaths too easily. The new king tried to defuse the situation, moving immediately to strengthen his position in the north. He issued coins bearing the single Latin word Pax, though ironically he would see little peace in his reign. Word arrived almost immediately that William of Normandy was raising a huge army, and Harold summoned the feared, a public levy of all free men, to defend the coast. As the spring turned into summer, however, no invasion fleet was seen on the horizon. Harold could not keep his militia assembled forever. They were only obliged to serve for a limited time, and most had to get back to the more important task of bringing in the harvest. Harold kept them as long as he could, but on September 8th, with provisions running out and men deserting daily, he officially disbanded the army. Medieval wars weren't fought in the winter, and it was now too late in the campaigning season for a serious invasion. Autumn storms made the channel crossing especially treacherous. The king retired to London, but a week and a half later, stunning news arrived. England had been invaded, but not from Normandy. Without warning, the terrifying Viking king Harold Hadrada had struck from the north, and with him was the traitor Tostig. Join me next time as I look at the fateful autumn of 1066, at the battles that gave the Anglo-Saxons their greatest triumph, and the final tragic end of the last English king. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.